if people say, you know, I want to do something to fight the climate with my investments, I, I really do not think ESG is the best place to start. We actually have a report that we wrote about this that essentially looks at a few different strategies. Like you could do ESG investing. We, we come away very skeptical on that. Uh, you could try and do divestment of fossil fuels, especially if you're a larger institution. And I think there's a lot of mixed view on that, but I think not a lot of evidence that it does, that it does a lot. Uh, the thing that we're a little bit more excited about... Welcome to The Early Advantage, where we unpack topics in the area of finance, economics, and investing. Well, I said area, but those are three things, but there are areas, those areas that need unpacking. If you've been watching me the past couple of weeks, you know I've had this mild obsession with figuring out whether it's better to try to affect changes in the world through investing pressure or through policy pressure. Last week, we spoke with Dave Calloway, founder of Calloway Climate Insights, that says, at least for climate, he thinks investing pressure is the way to go because policymakers are so slow and ineffective. This week, my guest is Dan Stein, chief economist at ID Insights and founder of Giving Green, which is a nonprofit organization that aims to help uh, address climate change as well. He says policy pressure is better. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up next. Then we go to talk about Taiwan with my former analyst, Xiaoping Huang. Specifically, now that the Pelosi visit is a few weeks uh, out, what's the long-term effect? What's the long-term ramification of of the semiconductor supply chain? Um, what does the world look like now with, with uh, uh, potential Chinese reaction to that? And then finally, Brian Christopher, who usually pops up at the end with some uh, stock screener with some stock ideas, he's popping up at the end again, but this time he's going kind of bearish. He's giving a reason why he thinks that we may have seen a head fake in the past month or two months with the NASDAQ. Specifically, NASDAQ has gone up a lot before in previous bear markets, and we might not be seeing the beginning of a new bull market, just a slight bump in an otherwise bearish market. So if you want to feel bad about investing, watch to the end and hear what Brian Christopher has to say. Maybe you're an ice climber or a cross-country skier or a downhill skier like me, and you've noticed the climate warming and your activities are a lot harder to do. Or maybe you're concerned about climate change because you just worry about the billions of people and animals and plants and just ecosystems in this world that are drastically affected by climate change and will likely be in the coming years and decades ahead. This, this summer has obviously been kind of a nasty preview of that, but whatever your reason, you're not alone. There are a lot of investors who are deeply concerned about climate change. Deloitte Consulting estimates by 2024, 50%, at least 50% of actively managed funds will have some type of ESG element. And the E is, I think, the major focus in a lot of them. So there's a lot of goodwill towards climate change, towards using investing money to, to help climate or help fight climate change, uh, affect it in a positive way. But does it work? Does it really work? That's the key question. It's been bothering me really for, for weeks and a month. That sounds like a small amount of time compared to the amount of time it's probably been bothering other people, including my guest today. But punchline here is I may not, may not have the answers, but I can at least bring on people who do. My guest today is Dan Stein, Dr. Dan Stein. I should say he is chief economist at ID Insight. That's a research group. And he is founder of Giving Green, which is an organization that aims to basically inform and combine donors and, and philanthropists in a way that channels money, channels resources to help address climate change. So in many respects, he's the perfect guy to speak today about this issue. 
Dan, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, James. Thanks a lot for having me. So one, one uh, quick blurb, let's say in, in 20 seconds, what is Giving Green? Uh, how does it work? And then we'll get to the first question. Sure. So Giving Green is a research and advocacy platform that tries to help donors, businesses, and investors allocate their money to fight climate change. We found that there is you know, extreme, an extreme rise of interest of people trying to figure out what they can do to fight climate change. There's lots of money being, um, being roused for the cause, but it's very hard to figure out what you can do where there's really evidence backing those choices um, and really high leverage opportunities to make a difference. So Giving Green is a website and a platform to help people make those choices. That, that sounds like exactly what the world needs right now, especially the evidence-based uh, decision model. I mean, you've got people like uh, my guest uh, uh, last week, Dave Calloway, founder of Climate, Calloway Climate Insights, who says basically policy has been pretty ineffective at fighting climate change. And then you've got people like Tarek Fancy, who used to be BlackRock's uh, CIO of sustainable investing, who says uh, ESG is is almost all greenwashing and doesn't really help climate change. What we need is policy. You've got really opposing views. ESG writ large has come under a lot of pressure this year, Dan, as, as you've probably been aware um, from you know, Deutsche Bank, we've had greenwashing allegations. We've had uh, Tesla gets kicked out of the S&P 500 ESG index while uh, ExxonMobil remains. Uh, it's, it's, it's really confusing and it seems like a lot of moving goalposts. So um, let, me, let me ask you this. If an investor, uh, uh, an intelligent but maybe uninformed investor says, hey, I want to help, um, I can allocate money to my investments, or I can, can donate to charitable causes that may, may do advocacy for policy change, uh, how would you steer that investor? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's a great question. These are almost two different things. There's very different things you can do with the money. Um, I mean, I'm quite a believer. You talked about having one guest who believes more in investor pressure and one that believes more in policy. Um, I'm certainly a believer on the side of policy being the, the biggest lever that, that we can use. I really struggle to think of, I struggle to think of examples where investor pressure has really made a huge amount of difference. I mean, you can, you can definitely see the ESG movement and you can see that moving company decisions at the margin. But I think that, that, um, I think that ESG is a really poor tool to push forward climate action. Like what do people do when they invest in ESG? Well, they see these numbers, these rankings, they're in and out of an index, or maybe there's some kind of like uh, continuous ranking that someone like Morningstar or MSCI has put together that jumbles together hundreds of different things that nobody really knows what they are. In fact, it's proprietary. You don't need, you, not only do you not know what those means, you can't figure out what those things mean. And so if somebody goes up a tick, you know, does that mean that they like, they started paying their workers a little bit better, or does it mean that they cut out fossil fuels? It's it's such a, a wide and confusing type of things. And even if you focus in on the E, it might not have anything to do with climate change. It might be like, okay, we, we used a little bit less packaging in our, you know, in our shipments of Coca-Cola. What does that what does that have to do with climate change, really? And there's very little correlation, by the way, amongst those different ratings, you know, from one agency to another, whereas with let's say debt ratings. Uh, there, there's very high correlation, but with ESG, yeah. you know, what one man's, you know, good ESG company is, is not the same to someone else. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really problematic. I think when if people say, you know, I want to do something to fight the climate with my investments, I I really do not think ESG is the best place to start. We actually have a report that we wrote about this that essentially looks at a few different strategies. Like you could do ESG investing. We we come away very skeptical on that. Uh, you could try and do divestment of fossil fuels, especially if you're a larger institution and I think there's a lot of mixed view on that, but I think not a lot of evidence that it does that it does a lot. Uh, the thing that we're a little bit more excited about, but I think I think what what I find exciting is that finance is always innovating, and I think that a lot of people have realized that there are there are that people want to do something for the climate, and the normal tools out there are not really working. So the organizations that I'm a little bit more excited about on the finance side are some orgs that are really trying to solve this exact problem and just say, look, ESG isn't working. What can we do um, a little bit differently? If, if we're going to build a fund or a, a robo-advisor or something, starting from the place of we want to maximize climate impact, what would that look like? And I think those are the types of orgs that excite me going forward. Interesting. It's, it's very interesting. Um, and I, I think you're right. There are not many specific examples. One thing that we talked about last week with uh, Dave Calloway was Intel. It's not really, not really climate related, but years ago, Intel said, look, we got a lot of uh, like child warriors in our supply chain for this. You know, when, when you, your iPhone has all kinds of nasty metals that at least years ago used to be mined in African countries that had very little ineffective governments. And so you had these warlords who would employ these child soldiers who were addicted to drugs half the time. I don't know all the details, but it was a mess. And essentially the governments couldn't do anything about it. Policy couldn't do anything about it. So what Intel did is sort of start their own uh, uh, supply chain cleanup process that was later adopted by other companies as well to their credit. So, I mean, there probably are some examples, and, and you may you probably do know more than I know about even that one, but uh, but those may be isolated examples. And I think generally, at least the way I picture it is the, the investor ESG pressure, sort of like background radiation. It means something. It's a soft, subtle type of voting that shows companies, that shows policymakers, yes, there's interest there, but it's uh, conversely rather hard to channel that generalized background radiation into specific wins, if, if that makes sense. And maybe you had that engine number one and Exxon, I mean, they got them to divest, but then yeah, I, you yeah, could argue I think, that Chinese, I, Chinese oil companies picked up the slack, right? Yeah, you could. But I at least like that these guys are trying to do, uh, they're, they're trying to come with a very climate focused strategy. They're buying stocks, they're building coalition, they're getting activists, they're trying to, or they're, you know, they're, they're putting forth shareholder resolutions. I think there's a bit more evidence that these these types of strategies are likely to work. You're right. It's, it's really early. I think it's hard to tell whether, say, engine number one is, is actually working. There's another org, a, a robo-advisor called Carbon Collective that I like that's trying to very, very specifically make these decisions based around climate. So I, I think we need a little more time to figure out whether these are going to work, but they seem to have a more clear-headed strategy. And in and, and pure ESG, I'm going to argue that if you're really doing ESG investing, like, and and Forget about the name ESG. If people don't like ESG, it could be something else, right? But if you're really investing for that, you should be willing to accept lower returns as, as part of your charitable effort, right? Like, I, I don't have to make the big money because I know I'm doing something good. And it's hard to convince me that all those externalities of, of pollution and just being nasty to the environment, uh, you, can, you can have everything win-win. I mean, those do, those do lower costs, right? And so doing it the, you know, the good way, like organic food, 
costs more at the supermarket. Um, I'm okay to invest and, and accept a little bit lower returns if I invest with an ESG mandate. Maybe not everybody is. Yeah, but that's what's weird about the ESG funds is they don't get lower returns. And in fact, they, they try to argue that they will beat the market, which just makes me think like, like, like how can this be real? It, yeah. Yeah, it, it's funny business. <laughs> It's weird. I know some friends in academia who have said that at certain conferences, like a lot of these papers that get lauded by, you know, the pro ESG media are not necessarily respected deeply by, by, you know, the academic peers. And so, because people, there's such a hunger for that, but I'm not sure that it's real life. So let me shift gears though, Dan. So we, we have on one end of the spectrum, hedge funds or funds like engine number one, who are really hardcore focused on ESG on the opposite end are funds, passive management funds, uh, indexers, big ETFs that have, you know, now eclipsed slightly actively managed funds in terms of, of just pure investment money under management. And I'm going to ask you a similar question to what I asked Dave Calloway last week is, as a thought experiment, um, you know, if I buy a single stock, single company, I want that company to win. I want that company to dominate its peers, to be the best, okay, to, to, to compete very well. But if I own that company and also own three or four or five of its peers, I don't really care that much, right? Because I own everybody. And so I don't really have a strong preference for one company winning or losing. Now let's flip that logic the other way around. If I, you know, if I buy one company, uh, I want that company, if I have no morals at all, maybe I want that company to dump its nasty pollution in the river or just, you know, belch it out of the smokestacks because that benefits me, right? Dumping those externalities on the environment. But if I own that company, and a whole bunch of other companies who are downstream from that company, or maybe downwind from that company, suddenly I have more of a collective reason to care, right? Uh, that's kind of like what index funds do. Do you think the rise of passive index funds writ large over the next 10, 15, 20 years is going to be a net positive or neutral or maybe even a negative for, for ESG by any name? You know, I never really thought about it that way, but I think I would give a slightly different analogy that I find compelling. I think that a lot of reasons why, let's say, uh, like, let's say that you brought um, an, an investor proposal to a board that says, okay, we need to stop dumping stuff in the river. They might say, but my competitors are all doing it. You know, I can't have higher prices than my competitors. Um, so I like this. I like this idea Then, if you're, if you're Vanguard and you're voting on all these different proposals, you could say like, well... I'm voting for you, but I'm also voting this way. You know, we have this shareholder proposal on, on all of your competitors. We're voting the same way. Um, so I, I, do, I do like the idea that the vanguards and the Black Rocks can kind of push all companies equally if they get, if they get behind some of these shareholder resolutions. I mean, that's, that's what we, the, the type of convening powers that we hope someone like engine number one will happen. You know, for the Exxon thing, they got BlackRock and they got Vanguard on board. And so I'd like to see the vanguards and the Black Rocks keep joining together on, on these proposals and pushing lots of different companies. BlackRock is huge. And, and, and BlackRock going ESG, which is what we've seen in the past you know, decade, especially the past five years, has been a huge win for the ESG crowd. That's for sure. I mean, engine number one by themselves obviously wouldn't have had the sway to do very much. But by, by invoking the power of these behemoths, which I think have a lot more power than people realize, uh, you know, they've actually made real progress. So uh, let's see. I, I, that, that's an interesting way to put it. And, and let's see what the future brings. Uh, Dan, very interesting to talk to you. If someone is, is watching and is equally compelled and would like to learn more about Giving Green, your organization, how can they do that? 
Yeah, I, I, I encourage you to check us out at givinggreen.earth. We're a nonprofit and we're a public resource for philanthropists, uh, businesses and investors uh, looking to do something for the climate. I spent a lot of time talking about our, you know, our investment strategy documents, which is actually kind of a small part of what we do. Uh, we're big believers in the power of philanthropic don donations to, fit, to change policy. So a lot of our research is about that, about how you can really maximize philanthropic donations. We also have a growing uh, section of recommendations on how businesses can, um, can form responsible CSR strategies that are not greenwashing, that go a little bit beyond qu the questionable net zero commitments we see flying around these days. So we think there are a lot of resources for philanthropists, for businesses and for investors out there. GivingGreen.Earth. So get, not GivingGreen.com, GivingGreen.Earth. And exactly. it's not just for, I mean, it could be a business, it could be uh, an institution, or it could be just an individual investor, an individual donor. You got something for everybody there. Right. Awesome. Exactly. Uh, Dan Stein, thank you very much for taking time to join us. And thanks to you guys for watching at home. Great. Appreciate it, James. It was just a week or a little more than a week ago that Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan and delighted the Taiwanese, but really angered uh, the communist Chinese who retaliated in a number of ways. Before her plane even landed, they, they banned, I think, imports of 100 different products from Taiwan. They fired a bunch of missiles and then later they arranged about a three or four day, like a boat blockade of Taiwan, which all sounds really scary. It sounds really bad. We know that Taiwan is a hot button issue, but what does this stuff really mean in the long term? The blockade is over. The headlines are, are not, at least not first page he headlines anymore. They're kind of back in the newspaper. So we're, we're getting back to a long term stasis. But what does that look like? And, and on top of that, I, I asked because the U.S. just passed the 280 or 282 billion, something like that, CHIPS Act. And I know China domestically is massively trying to fund their own semiconductor industry. And, and semiconductors are relevant in this discussion because Taiwan produces something like 90% of the world's high-end chips and, and maybe as many as 50% overall. So it is basically an island of semiconductor makers, uh, among other things. And, and, and that at least could be in jeopardy because I don't think we're done with drama in Taiwan. Uh, we're done for now but there will be future dramas. So anyway, I'm not going to stand here and do a mon or sit here and do a monologue all day. I'm joined by my former analyst, Xiaoping Huang, who knows, I think, more than I do. Actually, I know she knows more than I do about this industry because she's been studying it. Uh, we're going to unpack a little bit about what this could mean in the future for investors. Uh, Xiaoping, thank you very much for taking your time to be here with us today. Thank you, James. Hello, everyone. Really happy to be here. I'm, I'm, I think we're all happy to have you, and I'm happy. I mean, I'm just intrigued is a better word. Uh, I'm looking at that contrast in your hair shopping between the very blonde look here and, and the dark roots, and I think it's kind of cool. Uh, it's interesting, and and I'm I'm hoping that that uh, the hair dye doesn't come from Taiwan or, or it's not at risk of any blockade uh, because it's it's interesting look. So let, let's talk about that. Oh, actually, before we talk, let me let me give a little background because for those not familiar with the issue. They say, what's the big deal? Taiwan is this little island. Um, Taiwan, a long time ago, like it has never been ruled by communist China. Uh, it has been part of China before, though. It was taken away by the Japanese. And as part of what China now considers a, a century of humiliation, roughly from the 1840s to the 1940s, where, you know, it was kind of like, you know, uh, pushed around by other world powers, it, they 
they've got a cause or a belief that, that reconciling or bringing Taiwan back into the old China is is part of the part of the the, the great era of China, or a necessary step to to reach that great era, I should say. Um, the Taiwanese, or at least the older Taiwanese, ironically see Taiwan or saw Taiwan as part of China, but not communist China. They saw it as part of the real China uh, before when the nationalists were at war with the communists, the nationalists went to Taiwan and sort of set up their own uh, government. So the whole, but, but Taiwan has never formally declared themselves independent of China, even though they are obviously effectively independent. In the 1970s, the U.S. agreed diplomatically to recognize Taiwan as being uh, as as you know, treat them as part of China through what's called a one China policy, although specifically it doesn't mean the U.S. agrees that Taiwan is part of China. They agree to agree that that China sees Taiwan as part of China. It's very confusing and, and recursive logic. It's um, long story short, it's a it's a very complicated political situation. In my personal belief, it's not sustainable for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but it's what we've got now. Uh, and it's the source of, of the drama that we're talking about today. So getting back to Taiwan uh, and getting back to you, Xiaoping. So um, we saw a blockade for three or four days. Uh, do you think that's really, well, okay, well, let me back up, okay? Because that's one piece in a bigger puzzle, in a bigger picture of Chinese retaliation. They they promised uh you know, a very, you know, don't play with fire, you know, we're going to fight back. But in real life, they didn't do anything against the U.S. directly, as they had threatened to, threatened to shoot down Pelosi's plane, threatened to, I don't know what else they threatened, but uh, it, it didn't happen. However, they did retaliate against Taiwan. Um, what do you make of that? And what do you make of, of, of their motivations? Well, actually, uh, what they did actually kind of meets my expectations. Like, you know, scary headlines, but actually, if you look at the data, they're actually not that scary because like, you know, we all know that like uh, China just, uh, there's a new blockchain between Taiwan and uh, China, but this accounts only for 0.04% of their two-way shape. You're talking about exports that they banned going from Taiwan to China, like certain fruits that they suddenly said, yeah. might have COVID, um, although it's not really transmitted that way, but you know, we'll, not, we'll ignore that for now. But, but certain things that they banned, it, it, it looks like a big headline, right? A hundred different things. But in real life, it's like less than 1% of exports. Yeah. So actually, the most important things between their two-way trade is the electri uh, electrical machine and uh, electronic and uh, technology parts. This is, this, these things has not been targeted. Yeah. And it's interesting. And obviously the military response also was, well, could have been much worse. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. pretty much most people in the world, except for, you know, some very nationalistic Chinese, but most people in the world, even a lot of Chinese, honestly, I think even a lot of people in China are happy that we didn't have a big war over this. And, and I, I think that's good. I think that's fair to say. Um, it, it could have been much worse. I mean, we saw a blockade. And, and just, to un, just to explain a little bit about that, I mean, right now, for those who don't follow Chinese politics, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, is going into what's called the 20th Party Congress that's happening this fall, where he is presumed to, he's presumably going to get rubber stamped again to be uh, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, which is kind of like his biggest title. He's also president. He's also head of the military. Uh, the rubber stamp is, is maybe like mostly guaranteed, but Maybe not 100% guaranteed. Nobody knows. So this year he's had, you know, they've had COVID zero lockdowns drama. They've had uh, a mortgage crisis and people protesting. You know, they've got some debt troubles. China's got a lot of internal troubles. And he's kind of 
trying to, he and the whole Chinese government, I think, they're trying to balance between uh, making a very nationalistic domestic audience satisfied with a strong enough response, but also not going too far that he creates a big war or some major drama in the international community, especially at a time when, you know, honestly, the, in, in terms of studies or, or polling, the world's view of China is really at an all-time low. And I think even though China is mostly inwardly focused, that has to have some weight. And so he's trying to say, think, how can we respond strongly enough, but also not respond so strongly that you know, we create World War III or we get the whole world angry at us. So in, in a way, I mean, the, the Chinese government is taking a lot of heat from people for, you know, for, for different things. But like, I kind of think from at least from that lens, if I were a political consultant inside of China, in a way, they responded pretty well. OK, I think they, they, they balanced it pretty well, meaning they, they they did stuff that was good for the headlines. OK, and, and, and at least satisfied some of that nationalism, but they didn't go so far as to actually create a war or actually create like this major international geopolitical conflict, which would have also brought a lot of drama uh, in, into Chinese politics. So I think they they're more strategic than than may have seemed and they walk that fine line. Does that make sense on, on your end? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like just like what I just said, scary headlines, but not that scary. So, so what happened? And I'm saying, I'm saying this someone who, who often doesn't praise the Chinese government. So I'm, I'm just saying, you know, mechanically, their response achieved, I think, what their their reasonable goals were. And I'm glad that those were those were the goals, and not, you know, shooting down Pelosi's plane and starting a war. I think that would not have made the world a better place. Um, but but speaking of that, Taiwan is not going away as an issue. Okay, this this is going away specifically, but it's going to happen again in some other way, shape, or form. There's going to be more drama. Uh, the U.S. knows that. I think China probably knows that. I think Taiwan knows that. I mean, even Taiwan Semiconductor is setting up manufacturing outside of, of Taiwan. And, and some people think it may have its factory set to blow up if, if Taiwan gets uh, invaded. Uh, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. But if it did, you know, we've got the U.S. spending a lot of money right now, $280 billion of this CHIPS Act. Uh, much of that money is not for CHIPS. $52, million, 52 billion, excuse me, is for CHIPS. Much of it is for different types of science and research, which think we really need in the U.S. You know, we're a nation of, of poets and movie makers and we need more science. But um, as far as as the semiconductors go, it takes a long time to to make semiconductors and even to make the factory that makes semiconductors. This is a long lead time, huge, hugely capital expensive business, capital intensive business. Uh, and and the U.S. is getting into it in a bigger way. Intel has been our big thing. Intel used to be the leader, and it's since really been eclipsed by Taiwan Semiconductor in terms of ability to manufacture. Um, what's your take on all that money the U.S. is spending to develop its own chip capacity? Well, it does help reduce the reliance on the Asian-made chips to some extent, but these new factors only solve part of the problem. Because like these capacity only like like producing leading uh, leading edge nodes, which is highly dependent on the on like lower end chips, and you know like these kind of chips they don't have like big big margin they have really low margin so there's no factories in the U.S. and they are not planning to make one, so those. Uh, these factories are still built in China. So these are prerequisites for the higher end uh, nodes, which like these new factories are going to produce. But like 
still there's remain some like uh, dependence on the Asian market. So it's a little bit like the U.S. building its own supercomputer. It's all fancy, but it still needs to order the plug, yeah. you know, to plug it into the wall from China, right? Like it's got all the hard stuff, but but, but China still has that that stranglehold on that. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Uh, and I know in, from China, the government there has been aggressively trying to support semiconductors so so much that mm -hmm. from I think January through May of 2021. There were 15,000 new semiconductor companies uh, started in China, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't need that many. And there's been accusations now of corruption and, and you know, people embezzling the money that the government has been spending. Uh, and that's not just a China problem. Anytime you have a government spending a lot of money on something, just so eager to dump it out, you get people you know, jumping in and, and, and trying to grab some of that money. And that, that happens pretty much everywhere. And it sounds like it's happening in, in China as well. Um, let me ask you, though, Xiaoping. Long term, Taiwan Semiconductor uh, leads the industry. U.S. is throwing a ton of money at the space. In 10 to 12 years, do you think that America will have comparable manufacturing capacity to uh, uh, TSMC? Hmm. You're thinking deeply about that. Yeah, it's really hard to answer because there's so many uncertainties, you know like geopolitical factors, things like that. But I would say uh, no, because like TSMC's uh, technology is like uh, the world's leading technology and Intel, which was the, which before it was the like uh, biggest and uh, best uh, chip makers in the world. It has like, um, it's still, because of the some like uh, policies, because they're uh, because the their strategy goes wrong, they fall behind for so many years. So uh, TSMC will keep growing if nothing happened to their company, not to Taiwan. Yeah, it's interesting because we're looking at it, at least the government points uh, paints the picture as an issue of government support being necessary. But honestly, Intel just fell behind, yeah. you know, in its own right. That wasn't really an issue of government support at all. They just, you know, didn't they just lost the ball. Um, and, and, you know, Taiwan Semiconductor was happy to, to pick up the ball. And, and now it's, it's a clear leader. Uh, so I, I guess it's more of an insurance policy. It's not necessarily something they have to beat them. But in the event, those factories go away or, or, or at least inaccessible, at least the U.S. will have something. Um, it sounds like, let me ask you this, though, as an investor, because we, investors are watching this program. Uh, are you still used to be bullish on Taiwan Semiconductor stock? Are you still? For now, I would not buy it. You would not buy it. You would not buy it because of all the uncertainty, it sounds like, right? Yeah. Got it. All right. Well, that's been helpful. Uh, we can chat more in the future about more more semiconductor stuff because the story is is not going away. Semiconductors are in a way like the new oil of of I mean everything is a new oil, right? And that analogy has been used for so many things, but at least technologically, semiconductors are the new oil. Uh, it is very strategic and it's a very competitive situation. The story is is not going to die. Uh, with this Taiwan crisis. It's staying for better or for worse. And we'll hopefully be there to update you as it develops. Uh, Xiaoping Wang, thank you very much for joining us. And thanks to you guys for watching at home. Hi there, I'm Brian Christopher. I write the follow the money letter at South Bank Research. In these videos, we've historically created wish lists based on certain setups that we believe may be valuable in the future. Today though, 
I want to discuss something with you. This topic is important because over the past many years, investors have been trained to believe that central banks will come to our rescue. That's not the case anymore. And I'm not sure you're hearing enough about it. So here goes. Dr. Michael Burry is the hedge fund manager portrayed by Christian Bale in the movie The Big Short. Burry correctly predicted and shorted the housing crisis in the mid-2000s. He and a few others did, in fact, but not many. Burry himself made $100 million on the investments. His investors made more than $700 million. In other words, he's someone who knows something. Burry has a Twitter account where he posts his thoughts from time to time. He normally deletes his tweets, not too long after posting them, but that doesn't stop me from learning from them. One of his recent and now deleted tweets was about the NASDAQ, the tech stock heavy index in the US. Burry basically said the financial media was getting ahead of itself with respect to the recent move higher in the index. Here's why. During the dot-com era, the NASDAQ 100 peaked on 27 March of the year 2000. It then fell 78% until it bottomed 30 months later in October 2002. That fall was terrible. It hurt a lot of people's portfolios. But maybe worse, at least psychologically, was the fact that the index rose more than 20% seven times during its 78% fall. On seven different occasions, investors may have thought the fall was over because stocks had popped higher, maybe even committed new money to the rising market only to lose it. Since its 19 November 2021 peak, the NASDAQ 100 has risen more than 20% once. We're in the midst of it right now. The most recent near-term bottom in the index occurred on 16 June. As I record this, after the 15 August close, the index has seen a 23% jump in two months. The market had become temporarily oversold before that jump, but I would submit it's overbought today. And if this era is anything like the one we saw after the dot-com bubble burst, the market could become oversold again and then rise aggressively six more times. Now, to be clear, in this chart, you're correct to say that the orange line doesn't look exactly like the gray line from the dot-com era. And stocks have historically moved up, not down. But there is risk stocks can resume their weakness. We have to be realistic. We need to be cautious. Central banks around the world are hiking interest rates. That isn't good for stocks. It's the opposite of the rate cuts that push stocks higher for much of the time since they bottomed in 2009. In this chart, the gray line is the Fed funds rate. The orange line is the NASDAQ 100. It takes a period of time for the rate hikes to adversely affect stocks. Of these rate increases, the one that ended in 2018 resulted in the least carnage. The market only fell 23% that time. And as we mentioned, 
The market is moving higher today. However, I believe the recent strength in the market is because many think the Fed will stop its rate hikes soon. But we don't know that will happen, though. And unless the Fed pauses these interest rate hikes or discusses their plans with respect to the end of future hikes, I believe stocks will see weakness once again. That's why they fell and lost nearly a third of their value from November of last year to their recent bottom in June. We need to be careful here. To wrap this up, I'm presenting this topic to you in case you didn't see it. Our purpose with this service is to observe things in the market and try to take advantage of them. Normally, that means we're generating a list of potential stocks to buy. Today, I'm passing this observation along to you with some additional information I cobbled together. I'm not here to suggest that Dr. Burry is never wrong. He is, and as shown in the mortgage crisis, he can be early, but I believe observing and learning from his moves and the moves of other smart people is valuable for investors. Oh yes, one last thing. Just before I began filming this video, I learned Dr. Burry had just reported his second quarter portfolio holdings. He only owned one stock as of 30 June. U.S. prison operator, the GEO Group, ticker GEO. He does not appear to be bullish. Thank you.